Let's talk a little bit about <clears throat> mindfulness tonight. I'd like to put it in the context of respect. In fact, infinite respect. Infinite respect is a term that is used often in Christian mysticism. And if you reflect on it enough, you can see that it's really the entire practice, no matter what tradition you enjoy practicing in. means it's respect for yourself, for everything that's other than self, objects, creatures, and it's infinite. That means there's no limit to how much we can develop along that dimension. I'd like to uh, present mindfulness, a rather unassuming term, a very modest, humble term, which I think conceals a great deal. In fact, the whole Theravadan tradition is like that, including IMS. It's a rather low-budget film. (laughs) Not too many frills. So even the terminology um, has that very plain aspect to it. Uh, Let me try to convey what I mean by infinite respect uh, in a number of of examples and then we'll come to our practice, I hope, in a very concrete way. Uh, Many of the ancient teachers used to speak wholeheartedly about wholehearted, about being wholehearted. Uh, This was in all the traditions, all the great religious traditions. Uh, In Jewish mysticism, sometimes they would talk about each person uh, was in charge of a certain portion of the universe. So let's say you just owned a little candy store. Okay, that's what you're in charge of. And our job was to care for it on behalf of God. You know, everything that went on in that little candy store or the office or maybe the dishwashing machine or wherever you spend your time when you're not here. So each person had the same job, really. Uh, Whatever your universe was, whether it's Gorbachev with the whole world watching and waiting to see what his next move will be, or just some tiny, obscure situation. Of course, how can you do that unless you pay attention? In Buddhism, it's formulated uh, probably most directly than in all the traditions because mindfulness is the core of the whole thing. If you take mindfulness out, uh, we're left with really just a menu and not much else. 
lots of nice ideas, but it has no life to it. The ancient Chinese used to talk about this wholeheartedness uh, in a slightly different way. Uh, They had, uh, for example, they would talk about the precepts. You know, I don't know if you took them or not, but we offered you, gave you the opportunity to take them Friday night. And one is not to kill, which seems obvious enough. They went to a, a more subtle level of it, that is, They talked about giving life to life and killing life. And this is a more subtle aspect of the precept having to do with killing. Killing life, in its subtle meaning, has to do with something like, as ordinary as, if you take a glass of water, but you wish that it were champagne, in that moment you've killed life because you're not fully experiencing, valuing, respecting the water, and you don't have champagne. So it was on that level a violation. Whereas if you were drinking either water or champagne, but really drinking it, then you were giving life to life. And by extension, just bring that into everything. That's what they meant by wholeheartedness. Very, uh, I have always found very useful guidelines from the Zen tradition. Uh, one in particular, and any of the good monasteries that you go to, especially in Japan, um, there's a lot of care in the kitchen. Kitchen is a very important place in Japanese monasteries. And a great Japanese master by the name of Dogen. wrote all kinds of guidelines for the cook. And it was, again, on two levels. One was what to do in the kitchen, and the other really had to do with cooking your life. And so you could read it at whatever level you wanted to. But there were suggestions of traps, like the following. Barriers to wholeheartedness. He talked about, let's say, uh, the cook is uh, making a meal for the emperor, and a whole bunch of dignitaries, and they're all coming to the monastery for the day. Well, there'll be all kinds of incredible ingredients and lots of people helping and very attentive and a wonderful meal is put together for the emperor and the emperor's retinue. Great care, great attention, wonderful. The next day, the emperor's gone and a bunch of scraggly monks and nuns come by to eat. And there isn't as much attention just some leftovers thrown together haphazardly. Not much care, not much creativity or concern for what the food is uh, because it's a social distinction. I mean, you, you can see what it is. It's like when our parents come to visit us, how clean the apartment becomes all of a sudden or other kinds of people when we care about what they think. So what they talked about was no matter who's coming there or also what, no matter what the food is, no matter what ingredients you have available, to always give it your best and to be one-pointed, fully uh, attentive to what you're doing. Put another way, uh, fully respecting what you're doing. 
which finally turns out to mean fully respecting yourself. Now, if you extend it, all these kinds of ideas, you could say that no matter what you encounter is your life. Whatever you encounter from moment to moment, that's your life in that moment. So what we're really talking about is the quality of our life. And as we know, there are times when we're very alert, very sensitive, very caring. Perhaps there's money involved, perhaps there's danger, important people involved, people we care about a great deal. And then there's a lot of times during life when we're just not, we're not there. And yet those moments are as much our life as the other moments. So that no matter what we encounter, that's our life. There's no escape from that, from moment to moment. And that teaching, which I assume is probably familiar to those of you who've been here more than once, you know you hear this over and over again, and I'm just saying it in a slightly different way. It has to do with caring for the moment, each moment being taken care of in the appropriate way. And that's the respect. Respect has to do with anything having to do with yourself and with others. Uh, Some years ago, uh, myself and two other Americans were in a Korean Zen monastery doing a three-month retreat there. It was way up in the mountains, very cold. We didn't speak the language. There was one translator, a nun, who spoke some English. The food was mainly pickled cabbage and white rice two and three times a day. The signs were all in Korean. It was a 90-day retreat, and the 45th day, suddenly the abbot of the monastery told us that, uh, he said it very matter-of-factly, that, okay, now we do our annual one week without sleep part of the retreat. <laughs> well, w- when we signed, in, signed up for that, we didn't know we were flying from Boston to Korea that we were one week without sleep, and we were not only furious, but terrified. Uh, It was one of their traditions. Apparently, it went back a long, long time, perhaps a thousand years, that in the middle of the retreat, after all, they'd given you 45 days to get calm. (laughs) What do you want? So we started uh, much. We had a lot of resistance, and we were having huddles all the time, the three Americans sneaking off, (laughs) toying with just catching the first plane home. And so we started in, and uh, the beginnings of it, into the first evening when we, you know, about 11 o'clock when you go to sleep, we just kept sitting and walking, you know, sitting and walking, and about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, we were still sitting and walking, at which point the place became like the twilight zone. (laughs) You are now entering the twilight zone. It was no longer, we didn't know where we were or what we were doing, (laughs) from lack of sleep and fear and... uh, it was very, very. It was one of the low points that I can remember in any practice anywhere, maybe in my life. And the three of us were all in the same place, and so we just uh, fed each other that way. And so the next morning, the first thing I did is I went to the Zen master who was in charge of the monastery. He was almost a hundred years old at the time. They would have to carry him into the interview room and carry him up to the platform to give talks. 
his body just didn't want to do anything anymore. But his eyes and his mind were bright and totally alert. It was quite hilarious, good sense of humor, just really good. So I spoke quite honestly to him about, the three of us did, about how we felt. And he wasn't ruffled. He said, look, it's simple. Uh, what's really oppressing you is the idea that you have seven days with no sleep. You're carrying that around and of course it weighs a ton. Put that one down and in its place, just do each thing in its turn with great care. When it's time to eat, just give your full attention to the eating. When it's time to go to the bathroom, really go to the bathroom. When it's sitting, sit and so forth. And he said, don't worry about the seven days. Let, them, let that take care of itself. I said, okay, we had read this in Alan Watts, you know, it sounded <laughs> sounded plausible, but poetic. But seriously, it made an enormous difference. I'm not saying that the seven days uh, was paradise. It was very hard at times, but it definitely was something that could be done. Although you don't see me offering to do it here, nor will you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you may want to do it. I just don't want Once is enough. Uh, but what was remarkable was that by listening to his words, and we were quite ready to listen to his words because we had no other remedy, uh, by really just doing one thing at a time, just living very simply, uh, it was just dramatically easier, much easier. And we even went the eighth day uh, kind of showing off that we were Americans and we could handle it. Perhaps some of you have experienced it in less dramatic terms or the, the dilemma anyway. If you have a lot of work to do or you have, a, let's say, a paper that's due at school and the mind makes up, oh, I have so little time to get this. There's a deadline and so much to do and so little time to do it in and lots of coffee breaks and phone calls and kind of avoiding it because of the anticipation and the notion that the, the mind concocts about what it is that's, that you have to take care of. But if you could just settle down and just do the first thing, just dot the first I or you know, just, you know, just open up and I guess now it's your computer. Fortunately, I don't have to do those things anymore. No more term papers. It isn't so difficult. Whereas if you can, instead of letting the mind take over and create a scenario about what it is you're enmeshed in, just begin doing it and just simply take one step at a time. Now, in life, things come up a lot like that and including this retreat. You know, you don't have to think about what day it is or where it's leading to or what's gone before or where, what it all means. Just really give your best wherever you are. And of course, that varies. What you can give varies from moment to moment. If it's late at night and you're tired, then what's, what is giving respect to your situation, your condition, perhaps can't be as full as when you're early in the morning. Okay, let's, uh, I'd like to now take that as a background so you have a sense of what I mean by respect. I hope it becomes a little bit more clear. And let's bring it to our practice in a somewhat more detailed way. Let's take the, the notion of mindfulness, which is often translated as sati, or sometimes apamada, which is heedfulness, very similar, but slightly different in an important way. Let me sketch out 
what is this mindfulness anyway that we keep hearing so much it's coming out of our ears at IMS? Be mindful. What is it? Let me suggest some aspects of mindfulness. Uh, perhaps listen to it and see if that's, there's any resemblance to what you've been doing for the last few days. And let's see if it helps us get a feeling for what we're doing. All of the uh, aspects of mindfulness I'm mentioning are almost this, they're slightly different ways of saying the same thing. But I hope it's a little more concrete, especially we'll bring in some examples. Mindfulness is uh, essentially is pure awareness. It's when the awareness is in direct contact with experience. It's that moment or a few moments before the thought process comes in and starts telling you what it is that you're looking at or what it is you're tasting or what it is that you're feeling in your body or what it is that you're thinking about. So it's a kind of very innocent, direct, pure contact with life. It's intimate and straightforward. And we have, do it in bits and, and pieces. Uh, if you haven't done training like this, there's still some of it. We're all doing it. But much of our energy is squandered. I would use that word. It's a strong word, but at least some of the time. It's squandered more on thoughts about what we're doing, names, labeling things that we're doing, than the actual experience. We're not so directly in touch with our bodies, with nature, with the taste of food. And of course, as you can see, our simple and yet unrelenting practice is designed to bring us back to that. To just feel simple sensations in your feet as you walk. We're starting all over. This is like kindergarten. I mean, I mean it in a good sense. We're being given another chance to go through it the right way now. We're eating carefully. We're walking carefully. We're learning about the beauty of the breath. Such a basic function and totally neglected. We have no idea about it. Getting to know our mind, you can't help but hear at least some of the things your mind is cooking up when you're here because you can't talk verbally, outwardly, but you can hear the mind talking inwardly, chattering to itself. And so we're beginning, uh, the, the practice of Vipassana is lengthening those moments when we're directly in contact with life rather than thinking we are but really being more in touch with lots of names about what's happening and ideas and images about people. We, we know who that person is. We've known them for a while and they're a XYZ kind of person. It's getting back to just the immediate experience, beginner's mind, freshness. So that's one aspect of what it is the practice is about. Now, the actual practice of mindfulness has a mirror-like quality to it. Real mindfulness is similar to a mirror. It's not identical, it's just to convey an aspect of it. In the sense that a mirror reflects exactly what's there. If the mirror is not faulty, like if this is a mirror and this is my hand, what it's going to show is just my hand as it is. It just reflects it. And then if I remove my hand, it, you know, it will now reflect the plant that's right over there. And if I put my hand back, it takes it. When I remove my hand, the hand is gone. And so this, if it's a clean, pure mirror, it just keeps reflecting what's happening. So that's one facet of the way in which mindfulness works. It's just registering what's happening. 
another way of looking at that, saying it in a slightly different way, is that it's unbiased. It's not adding anything to the way things are. It's not subtracting anything to the way things are. It's not judging. Judging is something else. Judging is the mind entering into it. And mindfulness can turn on judging and do its mirroring function to the judging. It can hear just judging happening without judging the judging. Do you know what I mean? It's very important because we do so much judging and and it's our way of slipping out of the dilemma without infinitely judging and then judging ourselves for judging. You know that one. We all do it a lot. Um, So in addition to its mirroring function and it being unbiased and uh, non-judgmental, there's no condemnation in it. There's no jubilation in it. It's just showing what's there. That's one. These are aspects of it. It also, there's only one time that mindfulness can happen. It can only happen now. Anything else is not mindfulness. It's remembering. Now, mindfulness can, again, shine its light on the remembering. Then it's mindfulness again. But the only time that mindfulness can happen is right in this moment. That's all. It's the only time it knows it can do what it's designed to do by nature. Now, that's all, that all, that's all it can do. Other aspects of this uh, miraculous quality that we all have, this capacity that each, each human being has and can develop, it is not egocentric. It has no real mindfulness, has no reference back to an I or a me. It's not I am aware of something or this is my mindfulness. Because actually a lot of the bias in our observation is when we have, when the frame of reference is egocentric. Very often we think we're observing someone very objectively. But really what we're seeing is that person, particularly insofar as they affect our life, If you're a boss and you have someone who works for you, you're looking at that person in terms of, well, are they helping you with your job? Are they making your life more difficult or more easy? And when you look at them, you may think, I'm really looking at that person very as clearly as I can. But it's 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 uh, got a standpoint. It's looking at the person from a certain standpoint. And of course, the employee is doing the same thing to the boss. You know, probably we're doing it to each other, I don't know, no doubt. It's not necessarily a terrible thing, but it isn't mindfulness. Because mindfulness just sees the way it is. It has no standpoint. Another aspect of mindfulness, and this is one that I think is what will help us understand why something like infinite respect can be used for a function like this has to do with um, a kind of confusion that many people have, especially when they start doing this practice. Uh, Sometimes people take uh, mindfulness to mean a kind of as if you're up on a mountain with binoculars or a spyglass and you're looking at life. You can't be touched because you're kind of objective and outside of what it is you're attending to. But actually, mindfulness is participant observation. 
to really do this practice, to know anything. You have to become one with it. When we encourage ourselves to, let's say, pay attention to the painful sensations in some part of the body, what we're doing more and more as you learn how to do that is you're becoming one with that. You're participating in your own pain. Now, we have this amazing capacity, we human beings. We're able to live out our life and we're able to be sensitive in the moment that we are living. We're able to live and also know our experience as we unfold, as our life unfolds. And a lot of what we don't know about ourselves is because we haven't been fully participating. We've been denying or repressing or avoiding, etc. So we're learning how to... It's not a, an escape, as you know. What do you, you know, this is called a retreat. It should be called an attack, I think. <laughs> I mean, what are, we, what are we hiding from? Is it such a piece of cake? I think, well, some retreats are. You know, some are more like a health spa. This one isn't. I mean, you may be using it as a health spa. That's your business. <laughs> this is not a police state. We just encourage you to work hard. But, and as long as you don't damage other people's practices, we're not going to. Although, we have agents some places. <laughs> like the walking's getting a little sloppy. So kind of, you know, in all three walking rooms, we have, we know. Are you getting a feeling for mindfulness? Does it fit what you're doing? No, just these are different aspects. Now, the participation, in a sense, departs from the mirror image because there's some warmth in this now. It's it's become, finally, a human activity. And the deeper you can uh, participate, let's take something as simple as your breathing. You can become one with breathing and it's quite a profound experience. And when you do it, the breath becomes much more peaceful. Those of you who have even begun to do it, you know that. Which is another way of saying you have become more peaceful. Because if you've become one with the breath and the breath is peaceful, uh, there's that immediate effect that you are more peaceful, at least during those moments. If you, on a hot day, drink a nice cold drink, which you appreciate, and if you really pay attention, you'll feel it affect every part of your body. It's like it cools your body, and so you feel better. So you're a cooler person. The breath is doing the same thing. The breath is affecting us. Every breath that we have uh, is having a very powerful effect on the mind and the body. That's part of why the breath is such, it's strategically located between the mind and body. That's what gives it its beauty as a meditation object. In one sense, it's like any other object. It's just something to practice mindfulness and wisdom on, inside on. In another sense, it's quite unique. Okay. I think I'm going to go over a bit tonight. How would you feel about that? Go over a little bit? Uh, I don't want to leave it this way. 
Ryan talked about the hindrances last night. Just take any one of them. Say anger or ill will. To be mindful of, say, anger or ill will or greed or whichever one. Pick one that you're working with. When we, the mirror-like effect means that what we're being asked to do is to turn towards that ill will or that anger in, in the mind and to experience it without adding to it or subtracting from it. In other words, it's registering it. It's unbiased. Now, mindfulness is preconceptual. It's before thinking. I hope that's clear. That's the first thing that I mentioned. And so what we're interested in is the direct, immediate experience of the ill will or the anger. In order to do that, you have to really open to it. You have to fully open to it and yet remain unbiased. It's only the present anger and ill will that we're concerned with. Sometimes in interviews, people will get confused and talk about anger from a few years ago or a few hours ago. But when you're being mindful, it's now. It's only this anger, right at this moment, behaving the way it is. Opening fully to that in an unbiased way. Are we doing that? Is that the art that you're learning little by little? And we could just go down just everything that I've mentioned about mindfulness, just apply it to any of the things that perhaps are on your mind. Let me uh, finish with a few examples of what I mean by respect in the practice. why mindfulness itself is a form of respect. That is a kind of careful attention. It's a respect for life. Trying to collapse a lot of things into just a few more minutes. Okay, one uh, contemplation that all of you may uh, wish to do sometimes. Uh, It's been used by the ancients and it's very, very helpful. It's good to use from time to time. Those of us who've been brought up in America need it, I think. You know, um, I think a while back, this culture, especially, I think one of the values of psychotherapy is that it, uh, probably starting with Freud and on, helped us to open up and to talk about our own, what was wrong, rather than just uh, grimly bear it, suppress it, express it in all kinds of indirect ways. Uh, And as you know, in the last number of years, more and more people are learning how to talk about what's wrong and to share it with others. We may have gone too far in one direction. Just my own personal view and opinion, which of course I'm not attached to. (laughs) because somehow what's gotten lost in the shuffle is what's right we're so busy coming up with what's wrong it's almost that's all you open up a newspaper magazine TV boy there's an awful lot wrong now the practice when done you have such a wonderful opportunity during your time here because we have it is such a simple life here 
There's so little offered to you for your money. I mean, just you get some good food. Really, it's good food. But, you know, a simple little foam rubber mattress and even the interviews, we limit them to 10 minutes. We don't want to hear your whole life story. How much can you squeeze in in 10 minutes? And a little talk once a night. By and large, you're just walking around, right? And sitting down and doing nothing. It's very simple. But what you can do is, uh, first of all, this is an excellent practice. If you're feeling really down sometimes, down on yourself, try this. See if it helps you. It's been used since the time of the Buddha. Just reflect. You know, take the first hindrance, which is greed. Or that wanting mind, that mind that's always wanting something. It's never quite content with what it has. The only thing it doesn't want is what it already has. Okay, so you begin to take stock of that. And you notice some of the simplest things, like if you get thirsty, we have water here. You can take a drink. When you're tired, there's a bed. You can lie down, and there are blankets. You cover yourself, and there's a pillow that's soft. You put your head on it. Ah. If you can see, it's wonderful. You have eyes that really can see. There are many people who can't can't see or they see in a very a damaged way. If you can walk, there are many people who can't even do our simple walking meditation. We can do it. I don't, do you get the direction I'm going in? That is, what it is is to take stock of, your, of what you have. Not what's wrong, but what's right. Certain qualities that you have. People, some people come in and when they're finished, let's say at an interview, you'd never know that included in what we're talking about is the fact the person is very kind, extremely generous. Somehow that gets lost in the shuffle and what, what is focused on in such a powerful way is what's wrong. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't examine what's wrong. Of course we have to. But we also have to not lose track of what's right with each one of us. Both are part of life. Life is horrible, right? It's a nightmare. And it's also wonderful. Both are part of life. And that, that expresses itself in our individual life. Doing that from time to time can wake you up to, I don't know, I hope this doesn't sound like just a whole bunch of cliches, you know, how precious life is. Now, when I mention something like infinite respect, frankly, I don't have a whole lot of hopes that using a term like that or even a talk like this is going to produce suddenly all of us becoming incredibly respectful and caring of each other and of ourselves. Or if we do it, we'll do it in a very stilted way. I'm being very spiritual right now. You know, those kinds of looks we put on our face. What I have much more confidence in is the practice itself. That is, as mindfulness becomes steadier and accompanies you in your living more and more, you become more intimate with every aspect of life and the respect just flows from it because you're more alive. You realize what life is. Not as an idea, even a pious idea. It's just so obvious that there's something incredible about being alive. And mindfulness is a direct pipeline to that. You can't miss it. Perhaps you've had your moments already. The breath is a very good door to it. Sometimes just sitting and breathing. I hope so. I hope everyone has experienced even a few minutes where you've just been sitting and breathing and fully enjoying the breathing and being at peace, happy. Nothing's really happening. No one's complimented you or told you you're handsome or beautiful or intelligent. You haven't gotten 
any money, just sitting there and breathing. And you can be quite happy just doing that. Well, of course, that's a pretty direct one when you look at it closely because the breath is life. We're literally hanging by a breath. The breath comes in, the breath goes out. The breath comes in, the breath goes out. If it doesn't come in again, we call that death. So when we're following our breath, what we're literally following is the life force coming in from moment to moment. But it can even be walking. It can come anywhere, just doing the dishes. Okay, I, do you know what I'm talking about? Have any of you had some sense of it? Uh, perhaps you could call it spiritual. When you start to appreciate things from a certain level. Let me talk a bit about our the samadhi practice and how that can help you uh, respect having to do with ourselves. A lot of it has to do with caring for ourselves. Learning how to take care of, particularly, let's now emphasize what's so problematic and what most of the interviews are about. How to take care of our suffering. That's a very big one for all of us, for all human beings. We, we do suffer. We suffer a great deal. And the question is, how do we take care of it? How do we care for ourselves when we're suffering? Now, if you hurt yourself physically, you cut yourself or scrape yourself, most of us are pretty good at going to the med- washing off, going to the med- medicine cabinet, putting something on, bandaging it, and caring for it, or going to a, a doctor or a drugstore. We care for it. Now, when you're really angry, or when you're really sad, or when you're really lonely, uh, you're hurting in the same way. It's now it's inner pain rather than the pain to the body. The mind is hurting, the heart is hurting. How do we in this practice care for that? Is there some way in which we can take care of it? We ourselves can care for it? There are two main ways, and I just will kind of hint at them, and I think they'll become clearer as the retreat unfolds. Regarding the samadhi practice, um, I hope you can begin to see that as your concentration improves, as your calm improves, as you uh, more and more are able to come to the breath in a consistent and continuous way, and you start to experience some of the stillness, peace, and joy that comes along with that, that what you are developing for yourself is a kind of home, a kind of sanctuary. And it gives you an option, which perhaps you didn't... Well, no, we've had this option before. Let's say the mind is full of torment. There's some pain in the body or there's some pain in the mind. When the samadhi gets reasonably strong, and perhaps you can even do some of it right now, you have an option which you didn't have before, It's like taking a phonograph needle off the record and taking it off. You can lift it off whatever is churning on in the mind. You don't have to get lost in it. And rather, you put it on the breath. This is the samadhi practice. And when you get really good at working with the breath, uh, very, very often, and for some people, all the time, they can just switch. It's like changing a channel from channel suffering to channel peace, channel breath. What you do is you're able to switch your attention so that you're no longer subject to these very unpleasant moods, thoughts, and so forth. It's not eliminating them. It's not uh, seeing through them. It's not gaining insight into them. That's something else. But what it does give you 
sometimes when you're suffering a lot, it gives you a way of not of slipping out from under the control of that suffering. It's not a small thing. It means it's no longer so fatalistic. We're no longer so helpless. That if things are a bit off, we can eventually turn to the breathing and little by little, the mind slows down, calms down, and we feel at peace. That's all that's happened. We've gotten out from under something that's been quite oppressive. Okay, now that's the samadhi aspect of the practice. And so that's one way in which we can care for ourselves. We don't have to suffer unnecessarily. Buddhists don't like to suffer. Right? That's what it's about. When we come to the wisdom part, let's take the same anger or ill will. Normally, uh, the options that uh, we as people have, unless we've received some kind of re-education or training like this or others that are similar, let's say you're, there's some anger. Either you repress it, what, me angry? You know, just push it right down. Or you get so identified with it that you're lost in it. Those are the two main options. We do a fair amount of that with everything. We either hide from it, deny it, repress it, squash it, sit on it at a cost, often to our health, physical health. Or we completely identify with it and are are tormented. We're really hurt because we make self out of it. I am angry. This is my anger. This is my suffering. Now, the practice is neither of those. So how... How do we practice, how do we care for our suffering when we're suffering in that particular way, whether it's anger or anything else you want to mention? We slip right in between. It's neither the repression nor is it being lost in it. We slip right in between where we let, let's say, the ill ill will run its course. See, we're learning how to let the breath do that. We're learning how to let the breath follow its own nature. Now, that training, little by little, can be transferred so that eventually you can also let the mind follow its own nature, the heart follow its own nature, reveal itself. Moreover, you develop the confidence and the actual capacity to know that everything is workable. So that, let's say, things, stuff turns up in the mind that we, that's a problem, but we have confidence it's workable. Okay, I'd rather it's not here, but it's here, and we can work with it. So normally, let's say there's just the anger. We care for it, but now we add... One, or in some cases, two things. We join it with mindfulness. Normally, mindfulness is not there. Now we add mindfulness, and that can be a huge help. And we can add the breath as well. In one sermon, the Buddha talked about the value of the breath, not only for calming the mind, but also how to use it to develop wisdom. If you, let's say, if you're angry, uh, if you become aware of the in-breath and the out-breath while being mindful of the anger, so that the breath and the mindfulness of the anger, it all blends together. You may find it's quite helpful. The breath adds a soothing influence, a calming influence, a steadying influence, while you're examining something that's not so easy to look at, namely the pain or whatever negative state. And so now, it's a way in which we are respecting ourselves by taking care of ourselves, but now with an emotional problem. Okay, the, the wisdom solution, this last one, has much more to it, having to do with impermanence and so forth. And a lot of that will uh, 
at least some of that will come up as the retreat unfolds. But for this evening, uh, well, we can get a little walking in. Okay, thank you. Can we have a moment's silence? If any point at all was relevant to your own life, let it sink in. Take it up and be mindful of it and let it, it's like planting a seed. Tomorrow at the uh, sitting right after breakfast be a, a little suggestion about uh, more that we can do with our, our meditation, meditation instruction. So uh, I'd appreciate it if you can come to that sitting, the one right after breakfast. <laughs>